You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I chat with Neil Bawa to discuss how to use a data-driven approach to know where things are heading in real estate, how to leverage technology when finding deals, how to leverage virtual assistants in your real estate business, Neil's new strategy with fourplexes, and much, much more. Neil is the founder and CEO of Grow Capitus, CEO of Multifamily U, and co-founder of the largest multifamily real estate investing meetup in the US. I'm not sure I could pick my number one favorite guest I've ever had on the podcast, but if I had to, Neil would definitely be in the running for that spot. This is Neil's third time joining me on the show, and out of everyone and everything that I've studied, whether it be podcasts, books, guests I've had on the show, Neil has probably had the biggest impact on my personal real estate investing journey, and I've likely implemented the most from what he's taught me. Also, one housekeeping note before we get started, there are a lot of changes taking place in the podcast space and with podcast apps specifically. So if you haven't already, be sure to follow this show in your favorite podcast app so that you get the new episodes each week and every time that they're released, especially if we do a bonus episode that's not on schedule, you'll make sure you get that right away. So be sure to follow the show. All right, now let's get into this conversation with Neil Bauer. I hope you guys all enjoy it as much as I did. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I welcome back Neil Bawa. Welcome to the show, Neil. Thanks, Robert. Glad to be back. You are one of the first guests to appear on the show three times. I think I've only had one other guest on three times. A lot has changed in the world since we last talked. So I'm excited to have you back to talk about it all. This show has grown quite a bit since the last time you were on. So for those who are new to the show or just haven't heard our previous two episodes together, tell us a bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. I'm a technologist. I'm a, I'm a nerd. Steeped in Silicon Valley culture, I've had a successful tech career. I've had a successful technology exit, and uh, I got into technology in reverse. Most people get into tech by you know doing uh, you know some flipping or some loans or or buying a single family rental. In my mind, in my case, I got started when my boss in my technology company asked me to build a campus from scratch in 2003. And I was freaked out when he said that because I hadn't even re- rehabbed my kitchen, you know, and he wanted me to build what was a six and a half million dollar campus basically from scratch. You know, I was like, there's no way I'm going to do this. But he was, my boss was brilliant. He knew a lot more about this stuff and he kind of nudged me and, and you know, did his part and provided mentors. And somehow through a series of disastrous mistakes, we managed to build the campus and build it all on time. I think it took about nine and a half months. During the process, it was the most terrifying experience of my life for a technologist to be doing something like this in real estate, which is considered a very advanced art to you know, build something from scratch. Most people in real estate don't do it. And 
But what's interesting was by the time I finished the process, I'd fallen in love with the concept of real estate, with the concept of new construction. And then, of course, like everybody else, and this is another part of the story, I basically did the whole value add single family and multifamily thing. But eventually, I went back to my roots. And now, today, we have my company was sold in 2013. We had a fantastic exit. And here I am, eight years later. Uh, my portfolio is about oh, over $500 million, over 500 active investors. There are 22 projects, and of them, 15 are new construction and seven are value-add projects. So it's been an interesting journey, and we can talk more about how I got from that 2003 building to this 2021 point, but that's a little bit about me. I'm ridiculously anally data-driven. I'm known as the marriage scientist in multifamily because I spend a great deal of time publishing thoughts on the web about the lack of people being data-driven in multifamily. There's a lot of People talk about data, but, but I don't think they actually use it the way that me and my company use it. And so we're, we're nerds and we're happy to chat with all the other nerds out there. Why were you tasked with building the campus? I was chief operations officer. Basically, in, you know, it was a company with 350 employees. And my boss's approach is anything that I don't want to do, my second in command has to do. He also said, if we succeed at this, we will do it again. So it's a skill that I want you to learn because I think you'll still be here. I was a partner in the business. And obviously, he knew that I would be there until the date that the business was sold, which was true. And so the, the business was sold 10 years after this. And so he wanted me to learn this skill. And I didn't understand what he was saying because it didn't make any sense to me. But he said, Neil, real estate can be fundamental to any kind of business. And I'm like, why? I mean, it's just another kind of business. What's so special about real estate? And then I learned that over the years, companies like McDonald's have become real estate businesses. McDonald's is a real estate business that also sells burgers. You know, you, you've heard that before. I think you, Robert's like immediately, yeah, it's like, yeah, he's heard this before. Burger King is a real estate business. My family owns 112 Burger Kings and 80% of their equity has come from the land and 20% has come from the cash flow on the Burger Kings, right? So, and then, you know, 105 Burger Kings, they have Taco Bells. They always say this, this is a real estate business. And then I started looking at big companies like Google and Apple. I mean, Apple's spaceship campus in the Bay Area is now worth $12 billion. They spent $2 billion building it, which means that they've created $10 billion in profit from a building. That's got to be a world record, by the way, for to create $10 billion in profit from one building, right? So it's, it's astonishing how visionary my CEO was when he said, real estate is central to all types of businesses. And this is not something you hear about on this program often because people that come to this program are real estate professionals. I was a technology professional. I still believe I'm a technology professional, but I've learned the right way that real estate is key to our, our business. So much so, Robert, that in the next 10 years, we built six campuses. I've actually seen that exact example. You mentioned Burger King, McDonald's, Taco Bell. I actually worked at Dunkin' Donuts back in high school. And I remember thinking to myself, like the operations of the restaurant of Dunkin' Donuts, they really didn't make that much money. I remember seeing that and I'm like, I mean, it's okay. It's just, but it's not really like that much money as you would expect from like a Dunkin' Donuts. It's a big company or a big brand that a lot of people know. So you just accept that they're, or you expect that they're raking in all this money, but really they're not. And then, like you said, it's the real estate play. You know what's interesting? I, I wanted to give you guys a nugget. This is you know, just it's an open your mind sort of thing. The biggest beneficiaries from the pandemic have not been the multifamily people, have not been the single family people. You know who are the biggest beneficiaries from pandemic? People that were sitting 
on single net lease land. People that were sitting on Burger King, Starbucks, Walgreens, Safeways, those areas, the cap rates went completely insane in the last 12 months because people realized that no matter what kind of business environment you have, people still need to buy burgers, buy groceries, and you know, go to a pharmacy. So the single net lease business has become crazy. My, my uncle basically is buying Rolls Royces and stuff like that. He's the, he's the one that owns 100 Burger Kings because the land that he was selling on, he's basically now gotten to the point where he's like, I don't even care. I, I just need to open a Burger King. I don't care if it makes any money or not because I'm in the business of taking unimproved land, building something on it, building a Burger King. And the moment it's built, that land is worth an astonishing amount of money. And then I sell that land. And then I use that land to build another four Burger Kings. And again, I don't really care if the Burger Kings are making money. 10 years from now, they'll make money. But today, that land, I can go in and buy it for 600000 and sell it for $6 million. So those were the biggest beneficiaries of the pandemic. It wasn't the multifamily guys. I mean, obviously, multifamily has made a lot of money over the pandemic. But it's important to, to know that there's lots of different business models in real estate. I'm assuming since you guys were partners at that business that you've probably stayed in touch. But I'm curious, have you guys stayed in touch? Is he surprised by your transition into real estate and everything that you've built now in your real estate business? No, I don't think he was surprised. So he's my mentor. I still am his kind of his closest friend. And you know, he's kind of the only one that he's now 70. And so he didn't allow anyone else in, in his house except for me and, and my wife. So he kind of was just cut off from everyone because he has some pre-existing conditions. And so, yeah, we've stayed very close and he hasn't been surprised by it at all because of all the things that we did. Because again, part of my story was once we got into real estate, I started dabbling more and more. By 2008, when the crash happened, I'd been studying real estate. I hadn't bought any, you know, except for my primary home. And to me, when I was doing the math in 2008, it seemed like the best time to buy real estate in history. And so I started telling people about that and they would laugh at the more they would laugh at me, the more angry I would get because it's like nobody's looking at the data. And I would be like, let me show you this on you know, my laptop. And they're like, no, 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 you're an idiot. If you think that this is the best time to buy real estate ever, you're a total idiot. And what I realized was this, that it is completely normal, right? You've seen this in the big short, right? That guy was telling everybody, nobody listened to him. He ended up a billionaire, obviously. So I realized that it, there's a tendency for people not to look at the data. They get driven by emotions. When, when real estate is crashing, they think it's the worst time to buy when I think it's the best time to buy. What I started doing is I was like, okay, I'm going to start working on my own hypothesis, irrespective of everybody. Else. Even my, the founders, the CEO who really believed in real estate said, no, I'm not going to buy real estate in 2008. So here's what I did. I went and mined the Zillow website using a hacker, a Ukrainian hacker. I mined the entire website, then I mined the BLS website. And I looked at the cities in the US that had dropped the most from the, from the peak in 2005 to the trough in, at the end of 2008. And I sorted them out and I found that the city, I live in California and the city was in California. It was called Madeira. I was 144 miles away. I show up there and I basically look at the homes and they're all brand new homes that were built by Kaufman and Broad and sold to farm workers with undocumented income. Now an entire part of Madeira was empty. Entire streets were empty, but the homes were gorgeous. They were beautiful. They were stonework, four bedrooms. They were stunning. They were brand new. Nobody had ever lived in them. And so I go in there and I say, I want to buy 10 of these. And they're like, yes, but what bank will give you a loan? You need tenants. Do you want to buy them for cash? And I'm like, I have the money to buy them for cash, but I don't want to buy them for cash because that 
that's just me throwing my money around. I need to somehow prove that these are rentable and profitable because my theory can't be proved unless they're rentable and profitable. So I jump into my car. I drive down another 20 miles to Fresno. Fresno is the kind of the big town in that area. And, and Madeira is kind of the commuter town. And I go there. I, I immediately put down a deposit on one property. And then I come back to my Ukrainian hacker and I say, this property in Fresno, I want you to give me 10,000 tenant leads, you know, prospective tenant leads. Why? I mean, market's pretty decent in Fresno. You, I'm sure you can rent it out. He's like, no, I, I said, no, I, I want 10,000 leads. And then I go hire this lady in the Philippines and I tell her, you're going to get a truckload of leads for this property in Fresno. I want you to reroute those people to Madeira by offering them $50 gift cards if they just go there. Nine out of 10 people laughed at her thinking that it's a scam of some kind. And she would be like, no, no, I have this, these 10 properties in Madeira. Here's a website. Go check out this website. Click on this link. Check out these homes. And yeah, you probably don't want to go to Madeira. You want to be in Fresno. But if you go there and check one of these homes out, I'll give you 50 bucks. We'll give you a $50 cash card or gift card. Nine out of 10 people thought we were a scam. The 10th one was like, okay, I'm just going to go get myself 50 bucks. I'm unemployed, right? This is 2000 and, uh, beginning of 2009. Lots of people were unemployed. People go there. And then they fall in love with these gorgeous, beautiful homes that are half the rent of crappy properties in Fresno, 20 miles away. And so four months later, all 10 of those properties are filled up and I don't even own them. I just have them in contract. Banks were friendly back then. And so I go and, and buy these properties in cash. And the next day I go back and refinance them. In a year, I've pulled out all of my equity and I have enormous cash flow. I have $12,500 in cash flow. Of course, a lot more today you know, because 10 years have passed or 12 years have passed, so rents have gone up like crazy. But even then, all of a sudden, I'm making $10,000 a month, and I feel so different, Robert. I mean, I'm making way more money than that in my big, big fat technology job, but my life changed because I wasn't dependent on my big fat job anymore. That's the definition of freedom. When you can say, today, if my boss changes his mind and fires me, I might lose $300,000, but my mortgage is paid for, I've got all this other money coming in, I just sensed freedom. And then I never got a real estate out of, out of real estate after that 2009 ep episode, even though we didn't actually sell the company until 2013. So I, I didn't get into real estate full time until after that. Did you just buy one of those houses, then do this gift card strategy, and then buy the rest of them? Or did you just jump in and, and have all 10 under contract? So I bought one in Fresno as my anchor home. And then I put 10 in Madeira under contract. So I, I bought 10 in Madeira, actually, might have been 11 because one of them was sister in law. So about 11 in Madeira, but they were in contract. And I told the banks, I'm going to try to rent them up because I can't really afford to buy this many from one bank without renting them up. So the banks actually allowed me to have people walk through them. And once I had tenants lined up, I didn't sign the tenant contract because you know, that would be a violation. You can't sign a contract on a property that you don't own. But then I went, went back to the bank and I said, okay, this one has two tenants that are ready right now. I'm going to buy these two in cash. And you know, I was buying them for $90,000. I mean, their cost of construction was $270,000. So the, when I did the math, I said, this is the best buy ever. If it costs $270,000 to build a 2,000 square foot home and they're selling it for $90,000, I'm going to make a lot of money. So I would go and buy that for $90,000 in cash, sign the contract next week, move my tenant in, wait 30 days and refinance and take all of my money out. We just kept doing that until my family came around and I went from being idiot to hero over 12 months. Was that your first real estate deal on your own? Uh, yeah, my first 11, yes. Who was selling you these properties? And why didn't they just do... Whoever owned them, why didn't they do what you were doing? Well, firstly, banks don't know how to, do, to lease these. And keep in mind, nobody wanted... Entire sections of this city were empty. 
So what I was doing is this kind of bait and switch sort of methodology. Of course, people are being offered money to do it, right? So that it's kind of like a timeshare where people are, you know, go, go look at this property and I'll give you 50 bucks, right? And people are like, sure, I'll, I'll go look at it. And once they went there, they realized how much better those properties were. Because my property in Fresno was a small three-bedroom, 1994-built property. And here they were looking at a 2006-built, 2,000-square-foot home with stone built by a Kaufman and Broad. Imagine that upgrade and $600 less in, less in rent, right? So obviously, people loved it once they went there and saw the properties. And to me, all I spent was basically 10 gift cards, roughly, per property. So every 10th tenant that we sent to Madeira would say, yep, I, I love this. I don't mind the 20-minute commute. I'm going to take these. So bottom line was that banks were, in 2009, they just wanted to get rid of inventory. And the fact that somebody like me was doing this clever thing where I would put a property in contract but not pay them until I had a tenant, they loved it. They thought it was a great idea, but they didn't tell anybody else about it, which I'm surprised by. When you say that the bank owned them, is that because they're foreclosures? They're, all of them are foreclosures, yeah. Do you still own all these properties to this day? I've sold a couple. I needed cash to buy properties, you know, multifamily, larger multifamilies. So I've sold two, but I have nine. So I have a total of 13 tenants still in Madeira and Fresno. And I think they produce about 250000 in annual rents. What are those properties worth? I think they're worth about three hundred grand each. So they're about $3.5 million, somewhere in that range. So obviously, I've gone on to buy a lot more stuff than, than just those properties in Madeira. And, and that opportunity sort of ended in 2011 when foreclosures ended in that marketplace. And I've moved on since then and bought stuff in all kinds of other places, right? And obviously, now I'm a full-time professional we build buildings. So for example, just in Phoenix, we have currently $160 million of assets being constructed, multifamily, all of it. So there's 320 units and 240 units. So there's basically, we're building 580 units just in one metro. And it's not my largest metro. Phoenix is not the largest metro that we're in. And so we're building and buying assets all across the United States. I'm doing very little value add, just so you know, I'm not doing much. Because the word value add, and I know this is going to be counter to what people come in and say on your program. So it's, it's worth having a dissenting voice in every program, I think. I think the word value add in the United States in 2021 is an oxymoron because 95% of all multifamilies listed in the United States by a broker are already properties that at least one company has done value add on, if not two. I recently saw one that had been sold three times. And the first guy did about 10% of the property value add. The next guy did about another 60%. And the last guy did about 20%. So this property was being built as a value add, even though 90% of the units had been upgraded. And that's very common. 60, 70, 80, 90% of the units are upgraded. And they still call them value add. And even worse, where in 2014, a property called Via de Lago that I was a partner in in Dallas, not a single unit had been upgraded. That property ended up making a gigantic profit, massive profit. Today, there are no such properties. You don't really find them. And if you find them, 90% of your future profit is being given to the seller. How is that value add? So I, I look at the syndication value add part of the multifamily industry, and I find it to be a bubble. I don't find the multifamily industry to be a bubble. It's a, you know, it's a $3 trillion industry. Syndication is a tiny part of it. It's becoming a larger part. I think that used to be 1%. Now, maybe it's even you know, 5 or 10%. It's the most bubbly part of multifamily. 
And it's, I'd love to be on a conference session at the best ever conference or something else up on a table with, but you know, up on a dais with a bunch of people. I've been, I've presented at that conference, you know, several times before to really talk through why they still consider the market market to be value add. I mean, it's just, they're paying less than four cap in certain cases for properties that only have 20% of unrehab units. I don't get that. And so I've tried to establish that point of view. No one has really listened to me. So I've gone over to the dark side and started building units. And I'm delightfully happy with the buildings that are finished and are coming to market. Like in St. George, we have a building. We, we studied St. George. I, you know, I, I published data. About 50,000 people follow my data on buying cities. And so three or four years ago, I'm telling everybody, St. George, St. George, St. George, Utah, best city in the US to buy. And people are like, no, this is a tiny city of 100,000 people. You're crazy, Neil. You know, don't do this, right? You're going to lose, all, lose your shirt. And I'm like, but the data. And they're like, no, you're going to lose your shirt. Because I'm stubborn with the whole, but the data thing. I went and bought land and, and built a 117-unit property in St. George. Took a while to get the entitlements and then took a while, you know, COVID delays, et cetera. Now it's coming to market. I've raised my rents seven times. My current rent is 32% over the performa that I gave investors. It wasn't even 32% in year six when I was exiting. So I've already hit my year seven projections and I'm not done with lease up. Why? Because of all these value-add people. These value-add people go around buying 40-year-old, 50-year-old multifamily buildings at $120,000 a door. And then they have to raise rent. So they're super aggressive in raising rents to try and hit their performa. So my new construction building that's down the road can continue raising rents at an absurd level. And you know, I'm able to make more money from one new construction building than I was making from five value adds. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, 
a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. I have to say, I've been a bit lucky that when you and I talked the first time, you you taught me all about your data-driven approach and it really resonated with me. I wasn't one of those people that thought you were crazy. I, I'm an accountant finance guy by trade, so I've always been interested in numbers and data. And so your approach just really, really stuck with me. And I've done the type of analysis that you just mentioned for all of my own real estate. And I think out of anything that I've learned, you've probably taught me the most that I've actually put into action. Well, I'm glad to hear that. It's nice to hear that because I, so often people don't put it into action. And it's so simple. I mean, so I'm in markets like Provo, Utah, Idaho Falls, St. George, Dalton, Georgia. I mean, these are markets that people don't hear about. And they're so filthy profitable. It's just nuts. I, I can make every mistake in the book and double investor money simply because I have so much tailwind. I mean, imagine flying a plane with three, 400 mile tailwinds. That's what I've got with data. I tell people I'm the laziest syndicator out there and I can afford to be because the data up front tells me where to go. So look at any $500 million plus syndicator out there. You'll never find them in more than two or three markets. Two, sometimes three, somebody maybe in four markets if they've been doing it for 10 years. I'm already in 10 states and I don't, I, I don't say 10 markets. In some of those states, I'm in three different markets. So I'm in 10 different states. I think it's 16 different markets. And continuing, people are like, you're crazy. I mean, you know, the best kind of company has one market and you stay in that market. And the answer is fine. And you probably make a lot of money because you know, you know that market, but you're not data-driven. Those two things don't reconcile because the data changes. Dallas, you know, when, when I was talking about this you know, data, I was saying in 2014, 15, 16, I was saying Dallas is the best market in the United States. But you look at Dallas today, there was no rent growth in Dallas at all during the pandemic. None. There was no population growth in Dallas. And people are always like, really? That's, that sounds odd. Dallas is like, you know, fastest growing, blah, blah, blah. Please go and check to see what the, the actual population growth in Dallas has been. What happened over time is the population growth moved from Dallas and Houston, which were the fast growing cities, to Austin and San Antonio. So Austin and San Antonio had furious population growth during the pandemic. Dallas and Houston, basically nothing. 400 people came to Dallas in the 12 months of the pandemic. And nobody knows that. People are like, Dallas is the greatest market in history. The answer is Dallas was the greatest market in history. Now it's a good market. I certainly think it's a good market. Maybe it's even great, but it's not the greatest. And that's my whole point, that the greatest market in the United States is always a moving target. You mentioned a couple of minutes ago that you paid a hacker to scrape all the data from Zillow. And I can relate to that because I did almost the same thing. So I paid somebody to scrape all of the Census Bureau data for demographic data for 7,000 cities across the US. And then I analyzed all 7,000 cities based on your six demographic data points that you recommend people look at. 
and I ranked all these cities. And I ended up finding a small market with about 100,000 people that nobody's talking about. And me and my business partner, I mean, we're doing it on a much smaller scale. We're not doing syndications or anything like that. We're doing our own personal portfolio. These deals are just absolutely incredible. And we're using the exact same approach that you just mentioned. Fantastic. I'm really happy to hear that. I think that the goal, the, the system that I design, it's free. You know, there's no subscription, no upgrades, no, no upsells. I don't have anything like that, to be honest. I mean, I'm, I'm a syndicator. I have more investors than I know what to do with. I love giving this stuff away because it keeps me honest, right? So the biggest selfish reason for constantly updating the location magic system is that it forces me to look at the data every month. So we, you know, we update it once a month. So it's a, it's a system that allows anybody in 10 minutes to basically rank cities. And they probably are not as crazy as Robert Leonard to go out and scrape 7,000 cities. But even if you have like five cities that you're interested in, you can see which one's the best and which one's the worst very, very quickly. There's about 50,000 investors following it, but I'm astonished with how few syndicators follow it. Because if they were, then I would have seen more uplift in these smaller markets that you're talking about, Robert, and I haven't. So it's like, okay, great. It seems like the people that are following it are the average investor who looks at the toolkit and says, how can this be free? And people send me an email and say, is there something about this data where I have to pay you? It's like, no, it's free forever. You can even give it away to other people. I don't care. And they're like, I can give this away to other people? Yeah, they say, just go for it. Go for it. Stick your name on it and say, this is Robert Leonard's system and give it away. Data is meant to be shared, right? As far as I'm concerned, the model of the world that I'm interested in is the Wikipedia model. And I'll never change my mind on that. It's the Wikipedia model. Data is always meant to be given away. And that's the power of technology on the good side, as we all know about the power of technology on the bad side. And so people come to me, and I know that there's about 50,000 active people you know, using it because they come in you know, every time something changes, we update the Excel spreadsheet and we send out an email to people and they come grab the new stuff. Shocking to see that the professional syndication market Thousands of them have used this toolkit, but they don't move their markets. You know why? They're lazy. They already have the brokers. They already have the relationships. They don't want to go to a new city and start from scratch. But the truth is, when you do that, you're not giving your investors the the best that they could receive. I mean, you look at my investors, many of them, projects that were 10 years long are going to refinance and go to, to infinite returns by the end of the 24th month, because I'm aware of these tiny cities. I mean, St. George is no longer the best tiny city in America. It's now clearly Idaho Falls, Idaho. And if you don't understand that, go download the toolkit, play with a bunch of small cities, and it'll be very obvious that nothing comes close to Idaho Falls at this point. I don't know why Idaho Falls is the best city in America to invest in. I just know it is. The data point to that. I don't know the causes. I can speculate to that. But data kind of simply drives me the conclusion that this city is going somewhere. Idaho Falls actually came up on my list as well when I did my analysis. This was a year or two ago. But I think people just don't take the action. And I talk very publicly about the city that I invest in here on the podcast. And I have people reach out to me from time to time and they're like, well, why are you telling people where you're investing? Aren't you inviting a ton of competition? And I'm like, yeah, maybe. But there's going to be, say, 250,000 people will hear this. 10,000 might actually look into it. And then maybe a couple will maybe take action on it. I mean, People just don't take action. It's very, very small. And, and actually, that's, it's very interesting that it's very small. I mean, look at Idaho Falls. It's a 125,000-person market going completely bananas, going completely gangbusters. But even my own investors, I've had to go through a step-by-step process of educating them on Idaho Falls before they were ready to invest. Now, of course, everything that we do in Idaho Falls sells out in five minutes. But until we were ready to invest, 
their idea of Idaho Falls was potatoes. People would say, you know, why are you investing in the potato state? And the answer is that's the traditional Idaho. Just look at what's happened to Idaho in the last five years, right? It is the fastest growing state in the country. And whenever I say that, like when it comes out of my mouth, I say Idaho is the fastest growing state in the country. And they're like, the potato state? The answer is no, it's now the technology state because Boise is becoming the fastest growing tech hub in the country. In the country. It's not Austin. It's not Provo. It's Boise, Idaho. Nobody really believes that. And so I basically say, okay, are you in front of a computer? Yes. Okay. Type in fastest growing state in the country, 2019. Hit enter. Great. Now, you see Idaho there? Great. Now do it for 2018. You see Idaho there? It's 17. You see Idaho there? And people, eventually they start to come around and say, wow, this, this stuff, how do you know all this stuff? The answer is, it's right in front of you. I just typed in six words into the web. I mean, we live in this technology mecca. We live in this technology heaven where everything that we want to know is six or seven clicks away. And people don't click six or seven times. We're talking about data and, and we're kind of talking about it broad. Break down for us exactly what data you're looking at. So professionally speaking, we look at very large data sets. But I think for you know, most investors, I'm going to break down what they should be looking at. So you should be looking at population growth. You, know, you want the city to have a certain population growth. And it's kind of the exact amount of population growth that I recommend is beyond the scope of this. But you can, anyone can go to multifamilyu.com. There's a webinar stored there. It gives you the numbers. It gives you an Excel and a PowerPoint deck, and that changes each year. So you need a certain amount of population growth if it's a small city and a certain slightly smaller amount of population growth if it's a large city. So, but start with population growth because that drives up prices. And then look at, at income growth. Like You want people not just to come into this city, but you want their incomes to grow once they're in that city. And once you have population growth and income growth, that will inevitably lead to home price growth. And you might say, yeah, but you're a multifamily guy. Yes. Multifamily rents go up 18 months after single family home prices go up. There's an 18-month lag. This is known as Neil's crystal ball. So my Neil's crystal ball's rule is that if home prices in a city go mad, then rents will go mad 18 months later. So everyone in multifamily has an 18-month awesome crystal ball, which most people don't understand. It's like, why does it take 18 months? Well, because you know, when people are competing over homes, it takes them a while to come to the conclusion that they've lost the battle and they can never be homeowners you know, because the homes have gone up beyond their, their income levels. They can't qualify. And those people, it takes them a while to reconcile to the fact that now that I'm not renting, I'm going to find the best damn apartment I can find. And then they go to your upgraded apartments. The Robert Leonard goes and buys a, a 20-unit multifamily, upgrades it. He needs people that will pay 20 30% more in rent than the unimproved units. Those people who were looking to buy a single-family home, those are those tenants. Because now that they're not able to buy a home, they want to live in the best possible apartment possible. And technically, they want to live in the best townhome possible, just so you know. But, but you know, I'm not going to go into that. I mostly build townhomes these days because I find that that body doesn't want to live in apartments. They want to live in townhomes. It's just the townhomes are not there, right? So they, there's no inventory. So people go out and live in these rehabbed apartments. So when I build townhomes, people jump on them like hyenas basically attacking a dove. I mean, it just they disappear. We've had cases where we've had 42-person wait lists in the middle of January when it's snowing on these townhomes, simply because they don't have, you know, there's not enough townhomes in the United States. People want a, a backyard, things like that. Bottom line is you do the population growth, you do the job growth, and then you do the home price growth. 
And then the, the other two are crime. You want to go to cities where crime is either low or it reduces. And I, you know, the toolkit tells you exactly where to go and find that information. You don't need to come talk with me. You just go to the toolkit and use it. And the fifth one, which is all important, is, is jobs, short-term jobs, 12-month, last 12-month job growth. Anytime a city grows at 3% over the last 12 months, all kinds of completely backset insane will happen to real estate prices there. If it goes to 4%, it's absurd, outrageous, once in a lifetime. And there's cities like you know, St. George, Idaho Falls that are at that 4% equivalent today. Now, I said equivalent because obviously because of the pandemic, every place in the US has seen a dip in jobs. So I'm, I'm looking at relative job growth as opposed to looking at the overall job growth because even St. George has probably only grown its jobs by 1% this year. Yes, but when you compare that to the dip that the rest of the US took, it's grown it by 5%, which is a fantastic number. 5% is champagne bottles and dancing naked in the street with champagne bottles. I mean, that's how good 5% job growth is. But even if you go to cities with 3%, I have never seen a city, I'm yet to see a city of any side in the United States that isn't a ridiculous seller's market when jobs get to 3%. And I mean, this data is available for free. I, and I tell you exactly where to go get the data. So it's updated every single month. It's not two years old. It's like a month and a half old. So everything's available. People don't want to take advantage of it. Well, fine. How did you come up with these specific data points? So I, once I finished mining the Bureau of Labor Statistics website, the Sensor Reporter website, city-data.com, I had a database of thousands of cities, and I did statistical analysis. So I hired a statistician and used a software called R to do an analysis. And I said, I want to tie these data points, population growth, job growth, income growth, home price growth. I want to tie them to how much money investors make. Okay. And so the goal was, to see what affects the investor's pocket the most, what creates the most amount of equity, most amount of rent growth. And so what we did was we applied one and saw how much of a pop it had and by comparing different cities. Then we applied the next one. Then we applied the next one. Then we applied the next one. As we applied dozens of different parameters, some had a bigger pop than the others. We squeezed our data set down to four or five. For example, you notice that I didn't say schools because what I found is if you go into a city where incomes are growing, home prices are growing and crime is going down, the schools are taken care of. You are taking care of the schools at a city level by simply doing the other five. So when I added schools, I didn't get any boost in your profits. Robert was still making the same amount of money if I had schools in there. So I took schools. So by doing this, moving stuff in and out, I eventually realized that these five were controlling 97, 98% of investor profit. And the others were basically just taking me from 98 to 100. And I wanted a system that anyone could use without my help, without anyone's help, within 10 minutes. So with 10 minutes, I had to basically squeeze it down to that 97% of, of, the, of the factors. And these five factors that I just mentioned, that's 97% of real estate profits applied back to 3,000 cities over the last 15 years. I think I speak for every investor that has benefited from your, your data. Thank you for hiring the statistician so that we can just benefit from this and not have to go through that entire process. You're welcome. I think I, I did it because I'm anal about these things. I like to know what's the highest mountain. I like to know the square footage of the highest mountain. I, I like to know what is the easiest path up that mountain. That's just my personality. And I'm continuing to do that. I mean, for years, I believed that multifamily was the best asset class in the United States, but my data actually led away from it. Multifamily in my world, just so you know, I'm, I, I'm very diversified across assets, storage, industrial, multifamily, townhomes, single families. I'm very diversified. I'm, I've even forgotten some student housing. 
So when I look at different asset class, I get a chance to rank them in terms of risk and reward. And to me, I can tell you that today, 2021, this changes every year. It's easily townhome construction is the, the highest risk reward in the US, followed by industrial, followed by multifamily. Those are kind of the top three. And then right after multifamily, almost at the same level is self-storage. You know, and, and it's not that I don't like student housing. It's just it, my metrics don't show it to be that awesome today, did in the past, but that's, that's what the numbers are showing me today. So this changes all the time, but for a while, this ranking has endured. The last three years, it's been townhomes, followed by industrial, followed by multifamily. Since you explained that there's an 18 lag between increased rents following increase in housing prices, do you think that's coming soon? Because across the US, we're seeing a lot of housing prices increase rapidly. And then that happened over the last year. So I'm thinking maybe in the next 6 to 12 months, maybe that we're going to see rents increase dramatically. Do you see that? The next 12 months, we'll see the largest increase in rents in United States history. So should we, if as landlords, if we're listening to the show and we're, we own properties, should we be conscious of that as we look to extend leases and renew leases and things like that? Absolutely. I'm doing it. I'm, I'm not doing long-term lease renewals because I think that in six months, I can raise rents again. I think that this is not the kind of year where you raise rents once a year. I think you raise rents more, more than once. So you have to be crazily aggressive. And I know it sounds heartless because there's still people coming out of the recession. And for people that think I'm heartless, the answer is, look, if you have rehab units, you're not attracting the people that don't have money. You're not attracting the people that don't have jobs. They're sitting at home. They're sitting at home because their unemployment check is more than what they make normally. That's not an issue, right? So bottom line is, is don't hesitate. You are about to see the largest increase in rents in US history. Are you worried about buying A-class properties right now? And the reason I ask that is because typically, at least from what I've researched, is that when a recession hits, A-class has probably hit the worst and so on and so forth. Are you worried about that? Absolutely. I don't buy any A-class properties and I've never bought any. Building A-class properties is a completely different issue. And I don't really build A-class. I build kind of a B-plus class. So that B-plus class, for example, in Idaho Falls, imagine I'm building, think about this, Robert, you've got rentals, right? I'm building brand new townhomes. They're 1,400 square feet, three bed, two and a half bath with a porch in the back with a nice central walkway, dog run in the middle of a city's with a Starbucks being the next building, and I'm renting them at 1500 Do I worry about a recession? At 1500 bucks, this is what I'm renting. Brand spanking new. That's not classy. We've talked a bit about the city level, and I know you, you drill even deeper than that into the neighborhood specifics. What are you looking for there? Similar stuff. Like I want to see what the neighborhood's income levels are. I want to see what the poverty levels in the neighborhood are. I want to see, for instance, the ethnic mix you know, on, of the neighborhood. Immediately, the word ethnic causes you know, everyone's hackles to go up. And the answer is, no, I don't care if they're whites or blacks. What I want is I want a diverse ethnic mix. So an area that has all black or all white or all Chinese or all Asian is going to be much harder to rent. You're going to need a lot more leads. You're going to have a lot longer lag time. So you want to go to an area where there's a, basically a, a larger mix of people, a larger set of ethnicities because everybody finds that area to be nice. And those areas will rent very fast and will stay rented because nobody will want to leave. Because once they leave, they can't find something equivalent in the same market immediately. And so there's a hesitation to leave. So remember, the profit is all in the churn. So there's lots of places, 
like Las Vegas, for example, the rents are high, but the churn is very high. So you're losing a lot of money in Las Vegas on churn. People, people come and go all the time because it's a transitional city. And so most people that do the math, they don't have the churn in there. They don't have these churn statistics for various cities like Dalton, Georgia. Our churn is like 15% a year. In Las Vegas, our churn is 60% a year. There's an enormous difference in profit at the same rent between 15% tenants turning every year and 60%. That's something that nobody looks at, but it's the biggest determinant of how much money you're making on the cash flow side. I think that's, that's a key point that I wanted to point out. Have you ever seen any part of your data-driven strategy not work exactly like you expected it to? Has that caused you to make any changes over the years? Yeah. And it, so, no, I haven't made changes, but I've, I've seen it not work. So, um, and, but I've learned a few things. So, for example, so in 2017, 18, I became convinced that Denver was becoming a bubble because all of my data suggested that Denver was becoming more overpriced than any other market in the United States. I'd rank markets and I'd see, you know, overpriced markets and then I'd see a big gap and then I'd see Denver at the top. So, I started to say, there's no way this bubble is not going to burst. It didn't burst. And so I learned something new from it, that most people think that with bubbles, they only go one way. They consider a city to be, you know, in my mind, I was considering Denver to be 47% overpriced at that point, you know, two years ago. And then I noticed something odd happened. It became less overpriced. It became 40% overpriced. Then it became 30% overpriced. I had to dip, dig deep and figure out why that happened. And the answer actually, Robert, was that incomes in cities where home prices shoot up and rents shoot up don't follow immediately. They follow in spurts. So it's like a dam breaking. Eventually, people are like, I just simply cannot afford this wage. And it, when that happens, it seemed to happen, seems to happen across the board. And then within a single year, a city can gain 7 8 9% in income. And that's what happened in Denver. In one single year, the city gained about 7.5% in income. And when it gained 7.5% in income, it became less bubbly. Because those people could actually afford a lot more property because of a 7.5% growth in income. That's a lot of money, right? So 7.5% is about $4,000 a year. Well, assuming all four of that goes into your rent, well, you can afford a lot more rent now. So bottom line is when I looked at that, what I realized is most people think that everything just goes in one direction. It doesn't. And so what, what we've done is we basically looked at where our salary is growing in a spurt. If they're growing in a spurt, then that city has longer legs. For example, I'm not saying that the largest income increases over the next 24 months in the US are going to come in Phoenix, Boise, and Austin. Because these cities have gone completely ballistic on home prices. And I think a catch-up is about to happen. So at some point in the next 24 months, the dam will break, workers will revolt, and employers will pay more. We're going to see large income increases in those three cities. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. I know you're a big fan of virtual assistants. How can a new and small individual real estate investor who is not doing syndications, they just have their own small little portfolio, how can they leverage virtual assistants for their rental properties? I think it's a mindset. I've read a lot of virtual assistant books. I don't like any. I think I should write one, to be honest. I I don't think that anyone uses them quite like I do. I have an army of them. There's 20 full-time virtual assistants. They all work US hours. They, you know, they work an average of 40 hours a week. So there's roughly, I don't know, four, 800 hours a week of virtual assistants. And they allow me to work a lot less. I work basically from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. Monday through Thursday. Friday, I play golf. And to me, that's the life that I want. And my virtual assistants allow it. And doesn't mean that I don't have US staff. So you know, we have nine people full-time in the US. The virtual assistants allow us both to create an efficiency and a scale that's unmatched. Now, your question really was, how does anyone apply that in their portfolio if they're, they're not this scale? Which actually, the answer is simple, almost stupidly simple. And the answer is, you look at everything that you don't want to do or are not good at or are good at, but you think that it's below your level and start writing that down and creating short screen sharing videos and start handing those out to virtual assistants, the more you do it, the more you'll find that they can do. They can do astonishing things. I mean, for example, on the screen right now, I can see a video of Robert, but actually I have an LLC docs and tax filing tracker. This is an extremely complex document of my 22 LLCs. It's entirely 100% maintained by virtual assistants. You might say, really LLC tracking? I mean, there's a lot of you know stuff like 
data organizations and legal tax classifications and registered agents. How does any of this stuff work with virtual assistants? The answer is they can learn all this stuff. It's just a matter of you. You're the problem with virtual assistants not working well. You keep thinking that they can't do it. I keep pushing the boundaries on virtual assistants, and I know that from time to time it won't work. So I push the boundaries again, and then I push them again, and then I push them again. And it's okay for the occasional failure. What I see though is most Americans are like, if it fails, I'm not going to try again. I'm going to hire somebody in the US. My mantra is it's got to fail three times with three different virtual assistants before I think this is something in the US. And yes, there are things that we, our company doesn't do with virtual assistants. We do them in the US, but they're a very, very tiny fraction of our business. We think they're a very tiny fraction of anyone's business. Selfishly, I really hope you do write a book on virtual assistants because I know I would be a huge fan of it. And if there's anything I can do to help you bring that to fruition, let me know because I would, I would happily do so. Where do the current books go wrong? I think that the current books have vision issues. They're good with, okay, here's what a virtual assistant does. Here's what it doesn't do. Here's a set of tasks that you can give them. All of that stuff's great. But what I don't find in these books is a vision of where the virtual assistants can go to, a higher level and then an even higher level. And I think it's because most people who write these virtual assistant books write them from their perspective. So they're capped by their perspective. I'm running a $500 million equity company with two-thirds of my employees being virtual assistants. So I have now got that next level vision and that next level vision taken care of. And now we're raising it to a fourth and a fifth level of vision. And that's really it. Most people writing BA books have really never created armies. And so they're still writing at their level. I actually have quite a few virtual assistants myself. Again, I learned this from you and actually also from Chris Drucker's book, Virtual Freedom. But one of the things that I actually get from people from time to time is that I should be hiring in the US because that's good for the US economy. And I'm, I'm hurting the US economy by outsourcing. What do you think about this dynamic? I have never found that I'm hurting the US economy by, by outsourcing. So let me give you an example of this. So pick a typical syndicator that's been working for five years. Look at their number of employees and don't count the property staff because obviously my property staff is at the property too, right? I don't have virtual assistants at the property. I've got staff. Count the number of core people that they have. And you'll find that the number of core people that in a syndicator like me in the US is five to six people. I've got nine. So what's interesting is that every single one of my Filipino army are there because of scale and speed. My company grows faster than any other syndication company in the US, and I hire, end up hiring more people in the United States. So in the same time frame, I now have 50% more US employees because of the Filipinos, because of the scale that they gave us. So this concept that because when you hire people in the Philippines, you're taking jobs away from people in the US is an utterly nonsensical concept. It is actually the exact reverse of the truth. Because what ends up happening is America is the most unique country in the world because of the speed at which our companies grow. Apple grows faster. Google grows faster. Apple has 20,000 employees in India. Google has 50,000 employees elsewhere. It doesn't slow stop them from growing. It speeds up their growth. Anything and everything, technology, virtual assistance, systems, processes, anything that accelerates your growth is going to create more jobs, not less. So it's a truly nonsensical idea that VAs take jobs away. On your website, you explain that part of your strategy is to divest a property and return the capital to investors within a three to five year time period. 
Explain to us why you've chosen this time period rather than holding for the long term, like say 10 years. You know, that's a very interesting idea. And I have a confession to make. I did that early on simply because other people were doing it. I felt like, you know, I didn't want to be any different. Most people said, you know, three to five years. And so I did it. And now that I've become more seasoned, I'm actually moving away from that concept. And newer properties are either the kind where I return their money in two years, right? So new construction product, go in, build it, sell it, you know, give you higher returns in two years. Or I show them how they can keep them forever. I think the, the right answers are two to three years or forever, not the five-year concept. And a lot of people are like, yeah, but I want five years of cash flow. Well, if you want five years of cash flow, why don't you keep something forever, right? Because the big problem, the big flaw that the syndication, the syndication industry is very one-sided in their marketing. So they say things like enormous tax benefits due to cost depreciation, cost segregation, and, and depreciation. It's true. What they forget to tell, what I've never seen a syndicator say, which is completely true, is when I sell this building in three years, all of that depreciation and cost segregation is going to be recaptured, mister. You don't end up with $1 of it. So people are like, so what did I get out of it? Well, you got to use that money for three years. Well, that's not very compelling to use that money for three years. But what if there was a product that allowed you to depreciate for 30 straight years without one single dollar of recapture? Over years, I've built products like that. They're not offered by anyone in the syndication industry simply because the syndication industry is about turnover. And I'm all about pre-post-tax profit. I'm more interested in post-tax profit. So I realized that while syndication is a fantastic vehicle, it's not the most optimized. And the richest people in America didn't get rich by doing syndication or participating in syndication. So there are other models out there as well. My feedback is my website needs to be updated. And the truth is that I'm moving away from this three to five-year model, which was pro-syndicator, anti-investor. I wonder if this leads into my next question. And so I'm not sure if it was a Facebook ad or maybe just because I'm part of one of your Facebook groups or something like that. But I was on Facebook the other day and I saw something from one of your companies and it talked about how it was raising money for a property. But it basically said that the person was not investing in a syndication. Rather, they were actually an owner. And I read a little bit about it and I knew I was going to be talking to you. So I figured... I'll chat with Neil about this when it happens. I'd love to learn a little bit more about what that model is and if you could explain a little bit more details about what you're doing there. One of the things that happens is people go out and they do single family rentals and they have a subpar experience with a property manager or they, you know, they don't get anywhere close to the performa that they created. And they decide it sort of it turns them off of that single family model. Very often, happens very often. So then they go and invest in syndication, even though they're having a subpar experience there. People are not holding for five years, they're not giving them. The, the IRRs they promised, they're giving them less than that. But when they look at it, they go, well, when I did single family, I didn't hit my pro forma. The property manager was horrible. I don't want to deal with it. The truth is, the truth is that if you look at the numbers, the single family model is more compelling than what syndication people like me do. It is more compelling. The math is more compelling. But people don't want to deal with subpar property managers. People don't want, don't want to deal with performas that are inflated on you know, these $50,000 properties in Dayton, Ohio, which have horrible maintenance problems and never really make any money. Chicago is another one where properties don't make any money. Bottom line is, I became obsessed with the idea of creating the largest amount of wealth for investors, not cash flow, not equity, but wealth. And when I researched the models, the model was the investor needs to hold four plexes, not a five plex, not a three plex, not a two plex, not a 30 plex, but a four plex. 
And you might say, why fourplex? Because it's the largest single family loan. So it has all the benefits of single family loans without any kind of early payment penalties. We all deal, you know, multifamily, often you're selling a building, you have a $2 million prepayment penalty. You don't have a prepayment penalty of a dime for a fourplex, but you get four times the scalability of single family, 4x the scalability, but you still get the single family loans. You still get the, the, all of the other benefits and you still get the ridiculous liquidity that fourplexes come with. You can't sell a multifamily in less than six months if you're doing it right. We can sell a fourplex in 30 days because anybody can buy a fourplex. Anyone that has a W-2 income can buy it. So to me, it seemed like the best product in America. And I was like, why aren't there more fourplexes? Why isn't there a fourplex in every part of the United States? And the answer when it came to me was shockingly obvious, because you need professional management. So what I do now is I build 100-unit fourplex communities with one enterprise property manager, you know, the kind of property managers that manage 50,000 properties or 20,000 properties, they're managing them. But it's not a syndication because every single one of those investors own their own fourplex. And my, my goal is for people to never sell them. I tell people, if people say, you know, you know why, why a 10-year performa? Well, just to make you feel good. The ideal performa is you will never sell this property. Whenever you need money, you'll refinance it. Because refi of a four unit is ridiculously simple compared to refining a multifamily. And it's cheap, right? It's cheap. It's simple. You know, there's a million multi, you know, fourplex lenders out there, just like there are a million single family lenders out there. So don't sell it. Don't ever sell it. And don't share it. You've got 100% of the profit forever. And most importantly, you've got 100% of the depreciation forever. If you don't sell this for 30 years, in 27 and a half years, you've depreciated almost all of this property. And you've kept that depreciation. Unlike everything else where it gets recaptured, you've kept it. When you do the math on that based on 30% income, it's outrageously profitable. So I had to find a model to make it profitable for myself, which I struggled with for about two years and eventually found a model that works for me. Bottom line is enterprise communities with large collections of fourplexes are the best of all worlds. It's a large multifamily community. It's run by professional management companies, but everyone owns their own dirt. And that's what I do more and more. It's, it's only 20% of my business, but if the world is based on logic, one day it'll be 100%. That's fascinating because actually a couple months ago, I had a guest on the show who talked about the same thing. He does the exact same strategy. It sounds like you're doing it a little bit bigger. I don't think he's doing hundreds of them or hundreds of units together. I think he's doing maybe three or four, maybe five fourplexes together. But he had the same thesis. The problem is then you get single family property managers, right? So if you're, if you're doing five fourplexes, the property manager is a single family property manager. If you're doing 150 units, then you go to somebody that you know, manages 100,000 units and has 20 people in the accounting team and CFOs and you know, marketing teams. That's scale. That's what people wanted. That's why they didn't like that single family property manager when they bought a rental. They want to be investors. And to be investors, your money has to be managed professionally. So a professional property manager has to manage it. So you get that humongous scale and you get full-time employees at the property. So imagine it's a property that you own a fourplex in, but you also have an employee, a maintenance person that works nine to five at the property and makes 20 bucks an hour. And you get whatever share of that person that you need. If your property has no maintenance this month, you pay zero bucks. If your property has lots of maintenance, you still pay only 20 bucks a month, but that person is at your property. That's a ridiculous amount of scale without a ridiculous amount of money. 
that you can get if you have 20, you know, if you have 20 units with five fourplexes. So I'm, I'm more focused on building 100 plus units and giving them that scale. Yeah, I think that's the big difference. I, I have to think back. I, I don't remember specifically, but I don't think he provided any property management. I think he was just building these communities and then selling them. Then the only thing that you're getting is scale. You know, you're buying a fourplex in, instead of a oneplex, but you're ending up with all the other problems. So he's solving one part of the problem. My obsession was to solve all parts of it and create a situation where every one of my buyers would say, it would be ludicrous for me to think about selling a property which is as little work as owning Apple stock. So my goal was, and I'm, you know, it's going to take me a while to get there, but my goal was to get to the point where buying a fourplex, because it's being professionally managed, would be like buying Apple stock, except Apple stock doesn't give you, you know, six, seven, eight percent cash flow in a year. It's you borrowing somebody else's company. Here you own your own dirt, you own your own fourplex. You know, you've got all of the benefits of ownership and depreciation, which no stock in the world has depreciation. Real estate does, and it's ridiculous. And so I, I, I looked at all of the benefits of Apple stocks, and then I added all of the benefits of real estate, and I said, could I make this work? And it's taken me a long time to get there, but I'm very close. How do you think of four units versus five units? If somebody listening to the show is looking to buy their next multifamily or investment property, let's say they're considering a four unit or a five unit. We just talked about all the benefits of four units, which I completely agree with. But one of the benefits of five unit that I do really like, although the financing isn't as good, is that if you just a small change in your bottom line and your net operating income drastically increases the value of that property when you're not relying on comps. So do you think that the benefits that we just talked about of four plexes outweighs that potential value add of the five units and up? The answer is no, it doesn't, because we're talking about two different people. In my mind, when we're talking about the five plex, we're talking about the Robert Leonards of the world, the people that not only care about that net operating income creating massive value, but are willing to spend repeatedly the time to do it. And then there's the vast majority of investors who A, don't care about that NOI increase, and B, don't want to spend any time doing it. That world is much larger than Robert Leonard's world. It's 100x bigger. My goal is to provide solutions for that world because that's where I make a bigger impact. Robert Leonard's world, yes, five is bigger, better than four because you're spending sweat equity to grow the value of the property. But even in Robert Leonard's world, I have a catch. I have a catch. I say, for the, all the Robert Leonard's of the world, five is only as better than four if you're new to the business. Because when you, when you do sweat equity to raise the value of a five unit, you're shafting yourself. Because the amount of work that you would have to do to raise the value of a 200 unit is almost the same. So the goal is to go to five units, then go to six, then 10, 50, 100, 200, and keep going. And people are like, no, no, stop at 200. No, just go to portfolios, you know, go to 1,200 units, buy, buy 1,200 units at a time, buy 2,000 units at a time. Bottom line is that if you are using your sweat equity to increase the value of a property, it makes sense for the property to be as large as possible. That's a general comment. There are markets where smaller units have more juice in them, more profit in them. So it makes sense to go for the smaller ones rather than the big ones, which are at a low, low cap rate. So there's obviously some you know, comments to be made there. But in general, I think that it makes sense for people to start at five if they're doing sweat equity and then go up from there. Then you get the enormous scale of multifamily at 200 units. I have a bit of a fun question to wrap up the show here. When we were talking about data earlier in the conversation, 
I was thinking about this and I'm glad it came back up because I'm I'm big into real estate, but I'm also in the stock market. I'm not one of those real estate guys that doesn't believe in the stock market. And so when we're talking sure. about data and you just talked about Apple stock, I'm curious, are you involved in the stock market? And if you are, do you take a data-driven approach to the stock market like you do real estate? I do, but I find that it's much harder to implement it. So the problem is that there are too many people taking a bigger data-driven approach to the stock market than I am. You know, the high-frequency algorithms. So that market is much more evolved. It's decades more evolved in terms of the use of data than real estate is. So I don't have any key advantages in that marketplace. So the only recent ones that have worked really well for me is when the pandemic started, I bought Boeing, I bought you know, Starbucks, I bought a b- bunch of stocks that fell. So I did that because I felt that fundamental stocks would not lose value. And that's worked out really well for me. But I don't play with large numbers. When, when I'm in real estate, I play with tens of millions. When I'm in you know, stock markets, I play with hundreds of thousands. So I think a lot of it is because I understand that I don't have a fundamental advantage in, in stock markets because there's too many high-frequency algorithms that are always faster, better, cheaper than, than what I'm doing. Neil, thanks for joining me on the show again. I know I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot like I always do, and I'm sure the audience will feel the same way. For those that are listening that want to connect with you after the show, where is the best place for them to go? We put all of our learning together at one portal. So it's multifamilyu.com. There's no subscription. There's no paid membership. There's no evolved membership. It's meant to be free forever. Everybody check out multifamilyu.com. Recently, we had about 1,700 people that signed up to watch a guru in data. I mean, this guy knows 10 times more than I do. His name is John Burns. He runs the largest real estate consulting company in America. He had come in and there were about 1,700 people there. And the week before, I presented on the impact of climate change on real estate, and I had over 1,000 people sign on there. And then every four months, I do my location magic course online. Again, it's offered for free, and there's usually 1,000 people signing up for that. So you're welcome to come and check it out. Nobody's going to force you to sell anything. No salesperson will ever call you. I mean, we're blessed with an enormous level of equity. We like to give data away. So join that community. The only promise we ask is that you continue giving it away to other people. Anything we give you, you're free to give to other people. And we hope that you will give to other people because that grows the data-driven investing methodology that we are so incredibly passionate about. So check out multifamily followed by the letter u.com. I highly recommend that everybody listening to the show today goes and checks that out. It's a resource that I use very frequently. I've relied on it throughout my entire real estate journey, and I will continue to do it for years. So highly recommend you guys go check that out. I'll put a link to it in the show notes below. Neil, thanks so much for joining me. Fantastic. Thanks for having me on again, Robert. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.